the time I was 14, I had been at eight different schools. Everybody follow Mother Goose, and whatever I say, you repeat after me, like an echo. We love stories! It's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And we're not talking about the news, we're talking about tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal and family tales. Stories today from folks like Robin Schulte from Florida and Betty Ann Wiley with a story called Chicken Lickin' and the Fox Hunt. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about monkeys. <laughs> yeah. So this story, Monkey King, is from Beatrice Bowles, and I am really excited about this story. Basically, the emperor of the South Gate of Heaven creates a magical monkey from a stone, and all of the monkeys on Earth start to worship this monkey. And, of course, this monkey king, being a monkey... Um, isn't quite satisfied with being Monkey King and gets a little greedy, and we'll we'll have to see where where that takes him. Oh, you know, <laughs> so many stories start in that way, right? Where where the person who is already king wants a little bit more, mm-hmm. and uh, and again, therein lies a story. Beatrice Bowles is the storyteller, and this is the story of the Monkey King on the Appleseed. Monkey King. An emperor sits at each of heaven's four gates, north, south, east, and west, to keep watch. But once, long, long ago, the youngest emperor, the emperor of heaven's south gate, could not sit still. He was jumpy, restless, and bored. He'd always rush off and run about looking for new amusements. One day, this young emperor stumbled on a stone shaped like a monkey. Using his heavenly powers, the emperor stirred the stone to life, and a magical monkey appeared. All at once, the monkey took off. He jumped from heaven down to earth. Zing! Then from one end of earth to the other. Zing! The emperor watched, wide-eyed with surprise. Next, the monkey walked on the sea, strode across the clouds, and rode the winds back to heaven. All the monkeys on earth were watching and chattering in amazement. Monkey King! Monkey King! They all became his followers. Monkey liked being called Monkey King. He liked having an army of followers. But before long, he was grumbling to himself. Monkey King, Monkey King, not good enough. What I should be is Monkey God. So he snooped around the world to find whatever might give him more power. He even went down to the underwater realm of the sea dragons to ask... 
What's the most wondrous thing in your kingdom? Sea Dragon King proudly brought forth a magic wand. This wand can grow or shrink to any size. And if it makes wishes come true. With that, Monkey grabbed the wand and fled, pulling precious silks and pearls from the gardens of the sea as he went. He appeared on land again, dressed in such splendor that seven warlords held a feast in his honor. Monkey ate so much at the feast, though, that he fell asleep right on the table. Just then, the sea dragon army stormed in, grabbed Monkey, and dragged him down to hell. They locked him up and wrote his name in the Book of Judgment. But the magic wand was hidden behind his ear, so Monkey soon escaped from hell, erasing his name as he went. Now Monkey felt afraid of no one. He shouted up at heaven, Now make me Monkey God! Hoping to keep Monkey from causing more mischief, the gods and goddesses offered him a job as a minor god, stable keeper of the heavenly horses. Not good enough. Monkey had a tantrum. He cursed at his creator, the emperor. He even tried kicking down the south gate of heaven. The terrified emperor begged the gods and goddesses for help. In desperation, they offered Monkey a more important job as a more important god, head gardener of the heavenly orchard where the peaches of immortality grow, the peaches that keep the gods and goddesses forever young. This was indeed a great honor. Monkey accepted. All was well for a time. The heavenly peaches grew sweet and ripe. But before long, Monkey started to think. Monkey God, Monkey God, hmm, not good enough. What I should be is ruler of heaven. Then Monkey found out he wasn't invited to the Heavenly Peach Festival, the most important feast of the year. So, on the day of the feast, Monkey hid under the table and used his magic wand to put all the gods and goddesses to sleep. Then he jumped up and ate all of the heavenly peaches. On his way home, Monkey snuck into the garden of the wizard Lao Chun, who was away at the feast. Lao Chun, it was rumored, had just invented an elixir of immortality. Monkey snooped around until he found the elixir hidden inside a gourd and drank down every drop. Now, Monkey was twice immortal. When the gods and goddesses awoke and discovered all the peaches gone and Monkey's paw prints on the plates, they were furious. Then they heard about the theft of Lao Chun's elixir. So they captured Monkey, dragged him back to Lao Chun's garden, and 
begged the wizard to change Monkey into some other, any other form. The wizard put Monkey into his magical alchemical oven, closed the lid, and locked it tight. For 49 days and 49 nights, the oven burned at white hot heat. On the 50th day, the lid was lifted. Monkey leapt out, unchanged and screaming, Now make me ruler of heaven! In despair, the gods and goddesses turned to Buddha, the greatest god of all, for help. Buddha called Monkey before him and asked, Why, Monkey, do you think that you should rule heaven? Why, why? Because I can ride the winds, stride the clouds, and walk the seas. And in a single jump, I can leap the world and, and heaven too. And I have a magic wand which makes wishes come true. And I have an army of followers who call me Monkey King. All true, said Buddha. But still there are powers and armies greater than yours. What other powers do you possess? I can't die. I've eaten the peaches of immortality and I've drunk the elixir of immortality. So I'm twice immortal, twice as good as any god, twice as good as you. I see, said Buddha. Here's a bargain then. If you can go beyond my reach, I will make you ruler of heaven. Monkey laughed in delight, leapt across the world, zing, and landed at the base of one of the four great pillars that holds up the sky. There, Monkey made his secret mark at the base of the third pillar. In a single jump, zing, he returned to Buddha. Now make me ruler of heaven! Foolish one, that cannot be. For you have not yet left the palm of my hand. What? cried Monkey. Buddha held up his hand. There was Monkey's secret mark written at the base of Buddha's third finger. Monkey shook with fear. Buddha placed one hand over Monkey, heaped up a mountain around him, and trapped Monkey inside for a long, long time. Finally, Quan Yin, the goddess of mercy, took pity on Monkey and set him free on condition that he go with the holy man on a year's pilgrimage. Monkey agreed and swore to behave. The holy man took no chances. He fitted Monkey with a shining silver helmet that would tighten whenever Monkey even thought of doing mischief. In no time at all, Monkey began to behave very well, and he caused no mischief on the long journey. When the year was up, and he and the holy man returned, Monkey cried up to heaven, Now 
now remove the helmet. The gods and goddesses laughed. Feel your head, monkey, they called. Monkey felt his head. The helmet was gone. The gods and goddesses gave Monkey a new title, the God of Victorious Struggle. Monkey had won the hardest struggle of all. He'd learned to manage his own nature. At last, having seen all the monkey business his own restlessness had stirred up, the Emperor of Heaven's South Gate learned to sit still for a while each day at least. And Heaven felt a little safer for a while each day at least. The story of the Monkey King told for us by Beatrice Bowles. I've been listening to it not only with you, but also with one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, that's, uh, you know, we've with that story, we've kind of tapped into one of kind of the most prominent characters in Chinese folklore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are lots and lots of stories about the, the Monkey King. He's one of those, he's one of those characters about whom a whole canon of stories is developed, right? Yeah. And I just have to say that I admire the audacity of this monkey. (laughs) And maybe it's because I am kind of like a neurotic rule follower, but I always have a special regard for the characters who who do crazy things. (laughs) (laughs) One of the lines that I think will go with me after hearing this story is you heard the line very, very near the end of the story about uh, about managing your nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, learned to manage his nature is what was what the line was. And I thought, isn't that isn't that uh, we we face that challenge, don't we? Right. Yeah. We come to understand our nature and then we 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 learn to manage our nature in in one way or another. You know? And I love that because you don't have to completely get rid of those parts of yourself. You just have to like learn to learn to use them in the appropriate moment. <laughs> right. The story of the Monkey King again, just one of many many stories about that fantastic character from Chinese folklore, uh, uh, shared uh, with us by Kendra Hanna. Kendra, thanks so much for bringing that story to us. Yeah, thank you. And of course, the story. Storyteller was Beatrice Bowles, and there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard the story of the Monkey King, shared with you by Beatrice Bowles. And coming up, stories from Robin Schulte and Betty Ann Wiley. But first, because we know that sharing a memory can sometimes spark a story for you that you can share with the people that you love, here is a memory of mine about word games we used to play when I was a kid. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
When I was a kid, long drives meant travel games. You know, looking for the letters of the alphabet in order on license plates or looking for license plates from every state. Antonio Sacre talks about playing a game in which he and the other kids counted cows outside the car windows. And if you passed a cemetery, all your cows died. But if you passed a church, all your cows came back to life. Well, our favorite games were word games. And our favorite word game, bar none, was Inky Pinky. Now, there are lots of variations on this game, and sometimes it goes by different names. But Inky Pinky is what we called it, and here's how we played it. The person who was it thought of two rhyming words. Say, for an easy example, yellow and fellow. But he wouldn't tell anyone the words. They'd have to guess. And the person who was it would give them two clues. The first clue as to the number of syllables each word had. And the it person would give that clue by saying some variation of the word inky. Like the words yellow and fellow would be an inky pinky. The words big pig would be an ink pink. The words manila vanilla would be an inkity pinkity. So see how that clue goes? And the second clue would simply be a synonym for each of the words. So if I were it and my words were yellow fellow, I might say to the rest of the people in the car, I've got an inky pinky for happy color companion. And the rest of the people in the car would work it out. Let's see, the clue was inky pinky, so we know each of the words has two syllables, and we're looking for a word that means the same as happy color and a word that means the same as companion. Oh, I've got it, yellow fellow. And then it would be the guesser's turn to be it. Now, yellow fellow is a pretty easy example. And after you've played Inky Pinky for the whole 700 miles between your house and your grandma's house, it gets pretty elaborate. Like, what's an Inky Pinky for Asian citrus unsatisfying story? Well, if you guessed kumquat dumb plot, you're all over this. You'd have been super comfortable in the back seat of the Payne family van. Well, Inky Pinky is that game from my childhood that I sometimes trust some of my grown-up friends with. My wife knows how to play it, and she knows a ton of words, so it's always fun. I taught the game to a business associate one time, and we went kind of crazy. After we'd been through the training rounds with ink pinks like chair and pear, and inky pinkies like paper and taper and candle and handle, he wanted to come up with one himself, and he thought for a few minutes... And during that few minutes while he was thinking, I was thinking about how I was happy to go easy on this guy. It was his very first time playing the game, after all. I'd be sure not to guess on the very first try. And when it was my turn again, I'd give him something easy to guess. And all magnanimous, I smile beneficently and wait for his clues. And then they come. I've got an inkadiddy pinkadiddy for trio of business travelers, bad cables he says, and suddenly the smile disappears from my face. I mean, inkadiddy pinkadiddy. I ask him to repeat it, and I count on my fingers, the syllables, five syllables on each side. Going big, eh? And what in the world? Trio of business travelers, bad cables. Well, I began to sweat. It was on a business trip in a foreign city on a long walk back to the place where we were staying after a day of meetings, and my brain was already a little bit fried. But this, this was a workout. Every once in a while, my friend would do that obnoxious thing that can drive inky-pinky gamers bonkers. He said, do you give up? Every six or eight minutes of silence. Do you give up? Oh, man. 
I could have slugged him. All the way back to the hotel, I fought that inkadiddy pinkadiddy, and it was like a maze. Just when I thought I had it, a syllable would be off, or something didn't fit the clue just right, and I had to start over again in my brain. We got back to the hotel. He went to his room, and I went to mine, and I got ready for bed and lay awake, staring at the ceiling. Now, I'm telling you right now, this is a story of triumph. I'll give you that spoiler. This is a story of overcoming incredible odds in a successful quest for answers. This is a story of winning the game. And so it was that in the wee hours, a flash of a revelation hit my brain. I sat up in bed with a ha! An inkadity pinkadity for trio of business travelers' bad cables. Ha! I rolled over and I grabbed the hotel phone on the bedside table and I called my friend's room and his voice came groggily through the receiver. Hello, he says. Who is this? And in triumph, I said calmly, an inkadity pinkadity for trio of business travelers' bad cables. A deafening silence. And then from me, in victory, three frequent flyers delinquent wires on the other end of the phone a click and in the morning my friend bought me breakfast the radio family journal of Sam Payne a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it on the apple seed Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up, a story from Robin Schulte about passing notes. That'll bring back a memory or two. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through great songs that we hear and come to love, through great books that we read, through the things that we see on screen, certainly through the tales that we tell around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire. And I've always loved the stories that come into our lives as we eat great food together, which is why I'm so delighted to have in the studio with me Colton Solberg, one of the partners in the Heirloom Restaurant Group. We're not just talking one restaurant emphasis on group here. Colton oversees a lot of different restaurants and, gosh, a lot of great food. Colton, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. You know, I walked into one of the restaurants in the Heirloom group one time, hungry and looking forward to it. (laughs) And I I happened to walk in. I didn't know I was walking in before the restaurant opened, but I did. And and so the restaurant was was not open, but but it was full of people. And what what I didn't realize then, but what have since come to learn, is that that was the staff of the restaurant sitting down to a meal together, which is something that they do every day mm-hmm. before the restaurant opens. Yeah. Uh, I've even heard it called the family meal. Family meal, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Talk yeah. a little bit about that tradition. Yeah, family meal is a great tradition. So, you know, I was I was unfamiliar with it. Some of the some of the restaurants I had, it just wasn't they didn't do it. Yeah. And so the first my first exposure to it was actually when I was working in New York. And yeah, every day, in fact, my, my job when I became, and this is fairly common in lots of restaurants, like when you're the new person, you're oftentimes responsible for family meal. Hmm. So and it works lots of different ways in different restaurants, but oftentimes you're given essentially like random scraps of things <laughs> and basically you have to prepare a meal that's 
that's enjoyable for the team. Huh. And, you know, it can be, you know, like this restaurant in New York, uh, La Cote Bosque was where I was working. It's not, it's no longer there, but, you know, it's a decent sized restaurant. So you had a pretty decent team. I mean, we would probably be, I'd be cooking for maybe 30-ish people, give yeah. or take. Right. Basically, you're taking things that, yeah, I mean, that we did a lot of veal preparations there. And so there was a lot, oftentimes, of veal scraps or other things like that, that you'd have to kind of take these weird cuts and try to figure out, like, how do I make this into something that's enjoyable? Yeah. Because oftentimes you're getting less than ideal ingredients and you have to be really creative. And so yeah. as a younger cook, it kind of forces you. I think when I was working at La Cote Basque, 60, 70% of the time I was dealing with veal scraps. And so you can only make Blanquette de Veau so many times before they're like, <laughs> all right, we're yeah. sick of eating this. And so then you have to get really creative and to be very resourceful. You're still responsible for your own station in addition to cooking family meal. Right. And so it's not like you're getting like this extra time to like think about it and create this wonderful meal. And so it forces you to be resourceful, which is a great thing. Certainly, um, a, certainly family meal can be, I mean, in some ways it's a business meeting, right? People yeah. are talking about what's going to happen that night. They're, t- they're preparing for their work. Yeah. But you don't call it a business meeting. You call it a family meal. Yeah. You know? And it really is. And, I mean, you know, it's interesting because that my first exposure was this experience in New York and it was, it was just a meal. Basically yeah. like you got, we opened for dinner at 530, family meal was ready at five and you got like 25 minutes to eat family meal, but we didn't actually, the like the dining room staff ate together in the dining room. The kitchen yeah. staff kind of ate together. But even within the kitchen staff, there was kind of like the, the you know, half the kitchen team was French and half wasn't. You know, the French cooks ate together and the American cooks ate together. And so, I know oftentimes we ended up eating outside or, you know, it was like a chance for some daylight before we, you know, were busy the rest of the night. But over time, I got exposed to other places and, and more of them did that in more of a communal way or, or the, a way that they, they sat together. Yeah. And that's certainly the way, the approach we take where we do, we do go over certain topics. We have usually a quote every week that we're talking about. Hmm. We have different items. You know, we, t- we try to go over some, there's different, there's always some administrative things that we're going over. Like, hey, employees don't park behind the building. You know, yeah. different things like right. that that are kind of whatever. <laughs> but there's also something inspirational every week that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, or aspirational, something that we're going for, something that we want to be better at. And so it does give us a time when we're all together to, it's, I mean, we kind of look at it as like our team huddle, right? From like yeah. a sports analogy where it gives us a chance to say, to kind of shift our focus like, okay, everybody's life is busy before and after work. But when we're here, we're focusing on this thing. Yeah. And I think it's been really helpful for us to help people, to help take people out of the mindset of, I'm just here to to take plates from this place and put them over here. Or I'm just here to... To take, you know, I, it's funny. One time when I was working in San Francisco, the chef, I overheard the chef talking to somebody on the phone and they'd asked him what he was doing. And he's like, yeah, I'm taking big vegetables and making them into little vegetables. <laughs> I thought, right. yeah, that's pretty much what we do yeah. all day long. But it takes it out of that transactional nature and makes it something more. And so I yeah. think it, it gives us a chance to tell people kind of say, no, we're focusing here. Yeah. And this is where we're going. And I think it's one of the things I love about what, what we get to do within our restaurants is that, you know, for, for a lot of people, a lot of people have an opportunity to work in a restaurant, whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's as a in the wait, you know, as a wait staff person, uh, front of house staff, you know, and it's usually on the way to something else. Yeah. You know, they're in college, they're working somewhere else, they just moved here, they're you know, they're doing something else. But I think for us, we've found that if we're intentional about it, and and we find great people that are on board or willing to come with us, that we can make those experiences for our team meaningful. That to me is the opportunity that, that comes from something like Family Meal, where it really is more than the sum of its parts. It's not just an administrative staff meeting. It becomes something that really is 
family. You yeah. become family in the process. With so much talk, you've heard, I've heard people talk about the importance of actual families, yeah. right? Getting together and Absolutely. having a meal together. And I think what a lovely thing it is for people in the food industry to say, you know, it's important for us, even though we're from different places, yeah. even though we don't spend a lot of time together outside this environment, yeah. to create a family by sitting and talking and eating together. Yeah. And that's one of the magical things about yeah. uh, about that tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I, I feel like the comparison between like my my actual family and my work family oftentimes becomes blurred. And it's like you have some of the same conversations, and no, we need to be nice to each other, and we don't talk to each other like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so it's 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 fun. <laughs> well, Colton Solberg talking just a little bit about what I think is a really wonderful tradition: this family meal notion of the staff of one of his restaurants getting together before the restaurant opens for the evening and enjoying a meal together and conversation and gathering in much the way that we talk about on the show: getting together and talking together and sharing stories together. And uh, what a pleasure it's been to have you, Colton. Thank, Thank you. Great stories do come into our lives in so many ways. A pleasure to chat with Colton Solberg, and we'll be sure to have him back. Lots more coming up. A story from Robin Schulte about passing notes up next on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. How about a story now from Florida storyteller Robin Schulte? It's a story called Note Passing. Bring back any memories of school days for you? I know it does for me. Here's the story on The Appleseed. Every teenager I know nowadays has a cell phone. And they all use it to text. But when I was a kid, we didn't have that technology. And so we passed paper notes. It's the precursor to texting. (laughs) And the cell phone is like a little electronic note-passing machine. It's an evolved form of what my friends and I did when we were kids. We would tuck secrets into the folds of brightly decorated paper. And then we'd make it into these strange origami-like shapes, and we'd pass them covertly to one another in the halls. My childhood was a series of shuffling from foster home to foster home to living with my mom and then eventually with my dad. By the time I was 14, I had been at eight different schools. I was this long, lanky line of awkward. And at 14, my best friend was this pseudo-tough girl named Donna Hufty. And together, the two of us were looking for our place in the world. And one day, we thought we had found it in a mason jar of alcohol that Donna brought from home and pulled out of the folds of her winter coat in the junior high bathroom. There were other girls in the bathroom that day, and they must have gone and told because later that day, we were called to the principal's office and our parents were phoned and we were suspended from school. And that's when my dad decided he was done raising me. It was someone else's turn. And that night, 
Standing in the doorway of my bedroom in the trailer home where we lived, my stepmom said to me, in the morning, I'm putting you on a plane headed to Kansas. And I don't care if there is somebody on the other end to pick you up or not. So I pushed down the panic and I picked up the phone. And I started calling all of my Kansas relatives. And eventually, I called my Aunt Gracie. Now, my Aunt Gracie and my Uncle Forrest had never been able to have children of their own. And I once overheard Gracie say, I want a baby so badly. And there's Molly, my mom, with four of her own, and she's not raising one of them. It just doesn't seem right. So when I called her, she said, Of course you can come and live with us. So I took that plane ride to Kansas, and there were Aunt Gracie and Uncle Forrest to welcome me. Now, my Aunt Gracie and Uncle Forrest live in a small Kansas town called Ozaki. It sits up on a hill, and it's surrounded by a lake, Lake Perry. And their house is the highest point in the whole town. You can see their house as you come across the bridge into town. When you walk in the front door, there is a limestone wall on the left, and then three steps that go up into this great room, which is the living room and dining room together. There's a limestone fireplace, and there are these exposed wood beams on the ceiling. Gracie's house looks like a ski lodge. And it smells new like a department store. And there are these floor-to-ceiling windows on three sides of that great room. Now, when I arrived, it was February, and it was cold, and the wind was blowing outside. So we stayed inside. We sat at the dining room table, and we talked about where I had come from and where I thought I wanted to go. Well, a few days later, I started at a brand new school, Jefferson West High School in Meriden, Kansas. On the first day of school, Mrs. Burkhart, the front office lady, she looked over my schedule and then she said, we'll get y'all set up, honey. And she turned and punched a button on a gray metal panel and she spoke into a microphone and said, Mrs. Cheatham, could you send Ramona to the front office? And in a few minutes, this beautiful girl with big teeth and feathered blonde hair appeared at the door. Mona, this is Robin. She's new. Can you show her around? Mona smiled and said, sure. And I followed her down the hall. So you're new? Where are you from? I didn't want to tell her. I was afraid she might discover my unsavory past. And so I simply said, well, I'm from Texas, but I'm living with my aunt, Grace Jolly. Well, everybody knew Aunt Gracie. They all called her Mrs. Jolly because she was a teacher at the middle school and she had taught most of these kids the year before. You live with Mrs. Jolly? That is so cool. You'll like it here. Most everybody is really nice. And they were. This was a country school, and it pulled the students from these two towns, Ozaki and Meriden, and all the neighboring farms in between. And new kids, 
were something of a novelty. And I was immediately the object of curious stares and the subject of excited whispering. Mona took on her job as my guide with enthusiasm. If we had a class together, why, she'd boot the kid out that sat next to her, and she'd have me sit there in that desk so we could be together. And if it was a class that we didn't share, she would walk me to the door and say, wait here, I'll come and get you after we're done. And sure enough, when the final bell would ring, why, she would appear at the door, and she would walk me to the next class. At lunchtime, we made our way to the commons area, which was this great open gathering space where at noon they set up tables and lunch was served. And it was there that I met Michelle, this raven-haired girl with a long nose and a little bit of a pointed chin. And when she smiled, her face, it grew pinched and small. She smiled a lot because she was always cracking jokes and trying to make other people laugh. But her jokes were usually at the expense of other people. When I came up, she immediately scooted over and made room for me there on the bench beside her. And then she leaned in and she said, everybody, listen, here comes Teresa. Spread out and act like there's no room at this table. I looked up and I saw this ordinary-looking girl with a, a lunch tray making her way toward our table. And then Michelle said, Oh, Teresa, you could sit with us. Well, well, there's just no room today. Sorry. And Teresa turned, and she started to make her way toward another table. And then Michelle, she grinned at all of us, and she said, I'm just kidding. Come on. Come back. You can sit with us. I also met Carla. She was fair-haired, fair-skinned, smart and sweet. And Stephanie, youngest in our class, she often acted young, laughing too hard at things that really weren't all that funny. In this world, these were the girls, the ones that I had watched from afar at former schools. And now I was sitting with them. And they seemed to want me there. Well, that afternoon, when I got home from school, Gracie was there. And we sat together at the dining room table. We drank instant iced tea from glasses with stained glass fruit on them. We were cocooned in the hours between school ending and time to start fixing dinner. And I told her about my day. So how was your English class? Oh, you have Mrs. Zuniga for math. She's tough, but she's good. You'll learn a lot. Who did you sit with at lunch? Ah, those are nice girls. Those are nice girls. I'm glad you had a good first day. And so that day ended. And it was followed by another. And another. And those chats at the table with Gracie after school became our routine. From our perch in the dining room, we watched the snows fall and melt. The winter winds died down. Green buds appeared on the trees in the yard. And when the weather warmed, we threw open those windows and we let that spring breeze fill us. It felt new and full of possibilities. There were times when we were sitting at that table and the conversation would die down. And we would sit 
so still, not wanting to break the spell, as if time might last forever if we didn't talk too loudly or move too fast. But eventually we'd look out the window and we'd see Forrest's car turn up the road at the end and make its way toward the house. And Gracie would hop up and she'd say, oh my gosh, where did the afternoon go? And we'd head into the kitchen to start fixing dinner. Well, during this time, I also became part of the Note Passing Network. This network of girls who passed clever quips and gossip back and forth. We elevated note passing to an art form. Often they were multiple choice. We'd have a lead in and then we'd have little check boxes and we'd come up with as many funny ways to finish that lead in as we could, trying to make each other laugh. It was fun. I sent and received notes bemoaning how boring Mr. Raider's class was, detailing the latest episode of Square Pegs, revealing secret crushes, and plotting weekend sleepovers. I liked these girls, and they liked me. One day, as I made my way through the hallway, I I was shuffling my feet and wading out the usual hallway bottleneck to get to art. I was surrounded by the swell of quickly stolen conversation, which was caught up in the slam of lockers and the low roar of many students. My hand hung at my side, and I saw Michelle coming toward me in the opposite direction. When she got close enough, she leaned in and she said, I wrote you a note. And she tucked a piece of paper into my hand. And then she disappeared into the crowd behind me. Now, the basement housed the art room. It was in the bowels of our single-story, sprawling Midwest school building. There was this dimly lit stairwell that went down, and then it turned to the right and opened into this concrete-walled open space. I waved at Mr. Denny. He was the short, coffee-drinking, walrus-mustached art teacher. And he raised his cup in greeting. Music was playing from a paint-splattered boombox propped up on magazines that we used for collage clippings. And the music, it echoed around that room. I found a table, and I sat down. And then I remembered that note. So I looked at it. It was a little rectangle, and it had a triangle that said, pull here. So I did. And that note relaxed in my hand. So I placed it in my lap. I pushed my chair back just a little bit from the table, and I lowered my head, and I began to read. But this note was different, not the colorful notes of the past. This one was black ink on a stark white page, and it said simply, Robin, some of the girls and I have been talking, and you're really starting to bug us. We wish you'd just go on back to wherever it is you came from. Mona is especially sick of you. She says that you follow her around like a little lost puppy. We've tried telling you without hurting your feelings, but it seems that you cannot take a hint. And it was signed, Michelle. I sat there 
feeling the hot flush of shame. And I knew that everybody in that room was staring at the top of my head, in on this hatred and knowing what I had just read. They had discovered that I did not belong. And I was going to have to leave, go somewhere else, but I wasn't sure where. But I had to get out of that art room. So I stood up and my chair scraped against the cement floor. And I turned to make my way towards the door and I saw this totem pole of heads. Mona, Michelle, Carla, and Stephanie. They had followed me down the stairwell and they had waited and they were peering around the wall and watching me and grinning wildly. I stopped and froze, and for a moment we just stared at one another. And then they burst out laughing, and I burst into tears, and I raced past them. And as I did, I heard them say, Did you read the whole thing? Did you read the back too? And further back in the art room, I heard someone say, Hey, what's going on over there? And I pounded up those stairs and turned to make my way down the hall toward the bathroom off the commons area. Behind me in the stairwell, I could hear the echo of their feet as they turned and made their way after me. I burst into the bathroom and and into a stall and I closed the stall behind me and I collapsed. Read the back. Down at the bottom of the note, there was a single word. It said, over in parentheses. I flipped that over and I looked and there... There in the center of that page, it said, April Fools. April Fools. What does that mean? It was a joke. And the bathroom exploded as they banged their way in and and they were banging on the door. And they said, Robin, come out. We were just kidding. It was a joke. It was a harmless April Fools. Come on. We didn't know it would upset you so much. Come on, come out. But I wasn't coming out. And when they realized that, one by one, they left the bathroom and went back to class, afraid they might get in trouble. And I waited there until the final bell rang. And that afternoon, sitting at the table with Gracie, I cried all over again. Tears of embarrassment and sadness and heartache and relief. And she let me cry. She listened and she shook her head in disappointment at the girls that she had taught just the year before. And when it seemed that I could not cry anymore, she said, I want you to know something. She waited until I looked up at her. And then there, in that safe place, surrounded by the trees and the lake, under the spell of frozen time, she said, Where you come from does not determine where you're going or who you will become. And then she said, Do you know why you're here? I shook my head. You are here because I can see the woman you will become.
Florida storyteller Robin Schulte with a story called Note Passing. A pleasure to bring that story to you. And again, maybe that's the kind of story that'll bring a memory back to your mind and to your heart. If it does, you can share it with us. You can write us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Some of our favorite storytellers come from listeners like you. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to wrap up today with a story from Betty Ann Wiley. This is a story called Chicken Lickin' and the Fox Hunt. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Once upon a time... Oh, excuse me. The phone's ringing. Hello? Yes, this is Mother Goose. Who's calling, please? Chicken licking? I was afraid you had been eaten by the fox. How did you escape? Well, what about Henny Penny and Cocky Locky and Drakey Lakey and Turkey Lurkey? They got away, too? Thank goodness. Where is Foxy Loxy now? Uh-oh. That's bad news. Well, I don't know if we can help you. We were just about to eat lunch. Yes, the children are here. Little Bo Peep and Little Miss Muffet. Little Boy Blue and Little Tommy Tucker. Hold on a minute and I'll ask them. Boys and girls, Chicken Lickin' says, If you are brave, will you please raise your hand? Oh, wonderful. Chicken Lickin', they are brave. Maybe we can help you. Let me tell the children what happened. I'm sorry to hear the bad news. I'll call you back. Goodbye. Boys and girls, Chicken Lickin' says Foxy Loxy is chasing the five feathered friends through the forest with a knife and a fork. Please hold up your hand if you'll help me find Foxy Loxy before it's too late. Oh, good. Thank you. Now, here's what we're going to do. Everybody follow Mother Goose, and whatever I say, you repeat after me like an echo. Here we go. Everybody walk like this. Keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and whatever I say, repeat after me like an echo. Uh Uh Uh-oh! What do I see? What do I see? I see a wheat field. I see a wheat field. Can't go over it. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go under it. What can we do? What can we do? We'll just have to go through. Everybody go through the wheat field. Swish, 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 swish. I hope Foxy Loxy is hiding in this wheat field. He wasn't in there, but you got some wheat in your hair. Can you get it out? Everybody get the wheat out of your hair. All right, that looks better. Let's go. We got to find that fox before it's too late. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What do I see? What do I see? I see a river. I see a river. Can't go over it. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go under it. What can we do? What can we do? We will just have to swim. Hands over your head. 
prepare to dive. On your mark, get set, go! Splash! Swim, 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 swim. Climb out the other side. Good. Get the water out of your ears. Good. Other ear. Get the water out of your eyes. All right. Get the water out of your nose. Get the water out of your mouth. Get the water out of your hair. All right. Let's go. Everybody walk. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. We got to find that fox before it gets dark. That's what I'm worried about. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What do I see? What do I see? I see a mountain. I see a mountain. Can't go around it. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. Can't go under it. What can we do? What can we do? We will just have to climb. Stick together so we'll be safe. Everybody climb up the mountain very quietly. Keep your eyes open. Uh-oh! Uh-oh! What do I see? What do I see? I see a cave. I see a cave. It's dark in there. It's dark in there. I can't see. I can't see. We'll just have to feel. Everybody take your little paw and put it in the cave. See if you can feel something. <gasps> Put your hand in and feel again. Oh, it's very fuzzy. Put in two hands this time. Oh, it has two ears. Put in two hands again. Oh, it has two slimy eyes. Feel one more time. Oh, it has a cold, wet nose. Feel again. Oh, it has sharp teeth. What is it? It's the fox. It's Run, run, fast as you can. Climb down the mountain. Run, run, fast as you can. Swim across the river. Run, run, fast as you can. Go through the wheat field. Run to Mother Goose's house. Shut the door. Lock it. Oh, wait a minute. I told Chicken Lickin' we'd call her back. Chicken Lickin', this is Mother Goose. You'll never believe what happened. All the children were so brave. We went through a wheat field. We swam across a river. We climbed halfway up a mountain. Then we saw a cave. It was so dark we couldn't see. We had to feel. We felt something really furry with two ears, two slimy eyes, a cold, wet nose, sharp teeth. It was Foxy Loxy. He chased us all the way home, and now the children can't go out to play. Why? Because Foxy Loxy's out in the garden. That's why. Oh, you will? Thank you, Chicken Lickin'. I'll tell the children right away. We're glad we could help you and your friends. You're welcome. Goodbye. Boys and girls, Chicken Lickin' asked me to tell you not to worry for even one minute about Foxy Loxy. Chicken Lickin' and Henny Penny and Cocky Locky and Drakey Lakey and Turkey Lurkey are going to tell the king exactly what happened. Then all the king's horses and all the king's men will come get Foxy Loxy and take him back to his den. And we will never, ever have to worry about Foxy Loxy again. And all I can say is hip, hip, 
Hooray! This is the way I say a hooray, say a hooray, say a hooray. This is the way I say a hooray on a wild and windy morning. Chicken Lickin' and the Fox Hunt, told for you by Betty Ann Wiley. What a pleasure to be with you today. Stories from Betty Ann Wiley, from Florida storyteller Robin Schulte, from Beatrice Bowles, a conversation with Colton Solberg, an entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's been a great hour. You know, you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive there filled with stories for you and your family. And not only full Appleseed episodes, but also Appleseed extras, mini-episodes of the show, a single story long, just a few minutes in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great tale. I'm Sam Payne. Hope you'll join us again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.